the Life of Them Live video podcast. Sorry we are starting late. We had technical difficulties. <laughs> so I am here tonight with Nancy Laird-Young. Give away, Nancy. And this is season two, episode 11 of the Life of Gem video podcast live. And it's called Writing About Family. And the reason we're calling it Writing About Family is because I'm interviewing the amazing memoirist, Nancy Laird-Young, author of Tea with Dad. Do you have your book? You want to hold it up? Of course. Thank you. Mine's over there. I got to go get it. Yes. So... I'm going to read Nancy's bio, and then I'm going to bring her in. She's going to do a quick read, five to seven minutes of a passage, and then we're going to start the interview. Thank you, everyone, for being here. And I might be a little slow on the comments tonight just because I'm having to use my phone instead of my computer. So this is Nancy's bio. Nancy Laird-Young worked various careers in human services, academic administration, advocacy for people with disabilities, which led to contributions to books, magazine articles, All of that led to positions in community, social media management, content development, and strategy, including at AOL, Time Warner. After leaving the corporate world, she moved to the eastern share of Maryland, presumably to care for her aging father. The story, and it's so beautifully done, Nancy, and we'll talk about that. The story is called The Memoir, Tea with Dad, Finding Myself in My Father's Life published by Green Writers Press, Green Place Books in June of 2021. So Young is principal among others in the formation of a new small independent press expected to open for submissions in late 2023. Welcome, Nancy. Yay! So happy to be here. It's nice to be here. I love your book, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first, if you don't mind, um, and as you know, I'm all about writing about family and relationships. My book, Tales of an Inland Empire Girl, starts with my father's death. So I would really love my audience to hear your book. Could you read about five minutes of it? Sure. I'm going to put the camera on you. Um, I'll start in the prologue because that talks a little bit about where I was when I had uh, wound up at my living on the Eastern Shore. And at that point, um, I'd been there about five years, um, had moved out after my mom's death to be closer to my dad. It wouldn't have worked if I just said to him, hey, dad, I'm moving in with you. But I offered to rent a house that he had that had been our kind of summer summer place to go to. Um, not far from him. And I lived there five years before things kind of fell apart for me. And um, I wound up moving in with him instead of starting out with my having to move in with him to take care of him. Um, So this is the prologue. And this happened in September of 2013. Five years after I relocated from the Virginia suburbs outside of Washington, D.C. to be near my father on Maryland's eastern shore, I picked up the phone and heard his voice. As usual, there was no hello. He never says hello when he makes a call, only if he answers one. Hi, Dad, I said. Listen, I want to talk to you about something. My father, a retired U.S. Army full colonel, had used that phrase to open conversations with me while I was growing up. And even then, at the age of 61, those words still affected me. 
my brain, if not my body, stood at attention while my emotions screamed incoming. Then as I struggled to contain the inevitable anxiety that followed, as I learned to do during my military brat childhood, first I prepared a defensive position as intel rolled in, just in case one might be in order. Then I held on to my proverbial helmet, hunkered down and braced myself for what was to come, curious yet vigilant. The past 20 years had been stressful for me. I'd been in handle what you can, when you can move for 15 of them, which began when my second husband, the person I referred to as my soulmate, the love of my life, disclosed that he was gay. As he and I dealt with that reality while trying to renegotiate our relationship as individuals and parents, I returned to the workforce full-time in my mid-40s after a significant absence. I started a career in the relatively new field of online media, staffed with the very young and brilliant, which I felt did not include me, in order to support my three girls and myself. Then in 2006, my mother died. Two years after her death, I moved without invitation closer to my father, motivated by the desire to take care of him if he needed me. My father's call was prompted by yet again another of my crises. In typical fashion, I had created it and then attempted to deal with too many situations that I wasn't prepared to handle by myself. I'd said nothing when I should have said something. I had not asked for help when I should have. I refused to help. I refused the help offered when I should have taken it. Dad was forcing a rescue, whether I had the sense or capacity to ask for one or not. And as he had done several times throughout my life, he intervened just before I hurtled over a cliff. I ran through all the possible topics Dad might want to discuss. My list of possibilities was long and trailed back to my childhood, possibilities built on a foundation of past situations or recent ones. Yet I suspected that this time money sat at the top of his list. I tried to calculate how many months of rent and utilities I owed him. Earlier that year, my place of work had notified me that they'd received a garnishment notice from the IRS. They calculated that I would be left with only $800 in each monthly paycheck. That wasn't enough to cover rent and utilities, let alone other essentials like food, gas, car insurance, phone and internet connections, which were necessary for my work, medical and dental deductibles, charge account payments, or the college tuition and housing expenses for two of my daughters. In addition, my youngest daughter, Jane, attended an out-of-state university and had one semester left to complete before graduation. Then there were the emergencies. I couldn't remember back to a time in my recent history when there hadn't been emergencies. As the representative from the payroll office read the notice to me, waves of shame and embarrassment almost obscured righteous indignation at the government's lack of consideration for not having given me due notice that they planned to drive me into poverty and demonstrate once again to my father my complete lack of competence at practically everything related to adulting. I swam in a pool concocted of guilt and shame as thick as pitch. I could barely move. I tried to take comfort in remembering that for the past 15 years, I had survived almost all the experiences on the list of stressors that shorten a human being, including four of the top five. 
marital separation, dissolution of the marriage, my mother's death, and a serious medical episode of my own. Until now, I'd escaped imprisonment, number three, since I still had a salary to garnish. I admit now to feeling then that three hots in a cot in a white-collar federal prison environment sounded more appealing than having my father step in. I heard they had libraries and lots of alone time. I fantasized about working out in the prison yard and all the free time I could spend writing. It would have been simple to resolve the tax issue when it first arose, but instead, overwhelmed about so much for so long, I had thrown the first letter and all subsequent ones into a large plastic box that stood in the corner of my Hi, everyone. I think we had a little technical issue. I'm going to try to bring her back in in one moment. But wasn't that wonderful? That was Nancy Laird Young reading from her book, Tea with Dad, which is an amazing memoir. So hopefully I'll be able to bring her back in in a minute. But until then, we may have to redo this interview if we can't get this going. Somehow she got kicked out right in the middle of her wonderful read of that book. And I'm actually on my phone, so I'm having a little technical difficulties of my own with my computer. So let's bring her in. Come on. I'm waiting for her to come back in. So I am going to talk to you about this book while we wait for her to uh, get back in. So Nancy Laird Young's book, Tea with Dad, is really a primer about writing on family. So if you're planning on writing a family memoir, this is where I would start. It really is about her relationship with her father and what happens when she moves back home with him. There she is. I'm bringing her back in. <laughs> Yay. We got you back in. That was only, oh, so keep on. And I, figured, I figured it out. So I don't know what yeah. happened, but I just, they said they were having problems and to try again. So I did. You did great. So pick up where you left off. I'm putting the camera oh. on you. Francis uh -oh. Barella, thank okay. you for your comment. She's loving your read. Okay. So oh, thanks. Um, let's see where I was, I think I was talking about how simple it would have been to resolve this issue if I uh, hadn't throwing letters into my big plastic labels. Um, I knew the problem wouldn't go away, and yet I hoped that magically it somehow would. I hoped that something might have been misfiled or calculated incorrectly. Surely a ridiculous error on their part would be discovered and they'd notify me before I had to sort through boxes of returns and supporting documentation. After the call from the main office, I dug through the mound of unopened mail I'd thrown in, thrown in the box of deal with later and found all the IRS communications, including the warning notice advising me that unless I responded, my wages would be garnished. There it was mixed in with everything else later had arrived. Thank you, Nancy, for that. Well, we lost her again. She'll be back in a moment. But that was Nancy Laird Young reading from Tea with Dad, Finding Myself in My Father's Life. She'll be back in a minute. But let's talk about why this book is important. This book is important because there's so few stories about 
sitting with someone and just listening to them and letting them tell you their story and then memorializing that. And what's very interesting, there she is, and we're going to talk more right now. Are you there, Nancy? Uh, I'm there. Okay, great. I think it's my reading, so I'm going to stop. Okay, we'll stop there. But, you know, what I really, what drew me in from the very beginning was how brutally honest you are. And for me, at least, because I'm a memoirist that overshares and loves to tell the brutal, honest truth and, truth and leave blood on the page, is that you're very honest about where you are in your life when this book takes place and where it begins. How hard was that to write about yourself more as a character so you could be unflinchingly honest? It was hard. Because as I wrote, this was really supposed to be a book about my mother and um, mm. who had died. And I had promised her I'd do her eulogy. I'd, you know, write her eulogy and deliver it. Um, and your brother served you on that. My that father was bad. Signed, well, he didn't. My father just assigned it. And, mm. um, and in the end, it turned out it was probably very good that he did. My eulogy would have been somewhat distant. Um, mm. It would have been very literary and, you know, quotes and whatever. I think what w. I found, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, I just decided um, as I was writing it, I was being, as I wrote the stories, I was in them. And I could see I didn't really like myself very much. <laughs> I was going, wait a minute. Somehow this all didn't happen to me. I played a part in this. And I think it's really important um, that we are able to look and see that just because we contributed or there are patterns that we follow that are handed down to us or we have reacted in life based on misinformation or stories that we've heard, we write our own narratives. And the mm -hmm. problem is if we don't have the information, the accurate information, um, we can write the wrong narrative for ourselves. And I think this was um, a chance for my dad and I both to get to know each other and for him to hear things he didn't know about my growing up. And for me to hear, uh, I thought my parents, because they fought terribly yeah. and this wasn't in the book but my mother battled with my father constantly and I thought she was horrible just horrible for you know and as I lived with him I went suddenly had this understanding for my <laughs> you know my, my mother's real sympathy because my dad my brother calls it colonel talk I call it crazy talk I would say to because my brother, he was a military guy your dad yes and he was the boss you know and he grew up in a house where the men were the boss whether mm. it, not really, the men were allowed to think they were the bosses, and the women ran everything. And my father told me that later. But um, well, there's that scene where he tells you to shut up, and it triggers you over and over, and you finally have to sit him down and mm -hmm. tell him, like almost like a friend would, "Hey, yeah. you need to use different language. This is really offensive to me." That and was I probably one of the hardest things. That was the first time, one of the first times. I think I had an adult mm. confrontation with him up until that point. My confrontations with him had always been very emotional with me as a me packing up and leaving. And I couldn't yeah. leave him. I had no place to go. <laughs> you know? And I was kind of confronted with, 
do I want to live my life like this where I avoid confrontation? And I, and we're talking 60 something years of avoiding confrontation. Um, and I finally decided to use some of the skills I learned in business where sometimes mm. you didn't talk sometimes in the moment was not the time to address an issue that sometimes you had to step back and do it when people could hear you and do it in a way that you, um, you know, consider the audience and come up with the best way to get them to listen to you. And so that's what I did. I waited until one day when I knew I'd be calm when he wasn't in the moment and defensive. Mm. Uh, and yeah. I could tell him from his daughter's perspective that he had taught me not to expect disrespect from people. But he was showing me disrespect when he did that. And he never said it again, unless he was kidding. He'd go, oh, shut yeah. up. And then he'd kind of look at me like, oh, what's she going to do? But um, so, and well, that, and it's really interesting what you say about your mom that the book was supposed to be about your mom mm -hmm. because, and then your mom's character was from a childhood perspective is so different than yeah. you looking back as an adult, which I had the same experience with um, trying to write about it. I figured out that my dad was Don Quixote and my poor mom, right? I mean, who I thought was this angry person, but really was just dealing with everything the best she could. But what I love about what you just said is, you, you know, yourself as an imperfect narrator, but a reliable narrator, you're being brutally honest. And then um, it's really a primer on how to get to know someone, yeah. right? Because your dad is what, 80 at this point, 80 something? He was about 82 when I moved in with him. Okay. And still healthy, still very healthy at that point. And he's passed since recently, He correct? did. He died I'm July so 6th of this month. I'm so sorry. Oh, I know. It's still, still hard. But, you know, having had that time with him, yeah. it was an easy, easier for us because I knew how he wanted to die mm. because we'd had those conversations. I knew that there was a funny, if there can be a funny scene in the hospital, we took him in and I told people we didn't take him in to die. We took him in because I could finally, we had finally convinced him to take some treatments. And if he didn't, it would be a problem. And uh, so we took him in over the July 4th holiday, because as you know, from my book, my father seems to love to go to the ER on national holidays. And, um, he went just before they were transferring him to his room, the doctor turned around and said to him, now, mind you, I'd been asking for a medical directive for a year, more than a year. And he kept saying, don't worry about it. Your brother's got it all. I said, my brother's in Florida. So that's not going to help you here. Luckily, we live in a place where everyone knows who I am yeah. and, um, knows I he started to allow me to go to to appointments with him and everything so but the doctor didn't know us and she turned around and she looked at him and she said by the way unlikely this will happen but if these things do do you want us to resuscitate you and I fully expected because he told everyone this for him to say no but at that time this didn't seem likely and so he said he thought he went why not? 
And I nearly got whiplash. I turned around, I looked at him like, well, glad you said something because I would have said no based on what you told me and having no directive. So he said, well, nothing's going to happen. And about 20 minutes later, he went into cardiac arrest. Oh, my goodness. They resuscitated him. And I moved out in the hall um, because I have some background in um, emergency medicine. And I, I knew what was happening. And I did not expect him to come out of it. He was that ill. And they brought him back. And... I knew hmm. then that if he hadn't died then, he would be dying shortly after because he was already very weak in the heart and kidneys and everything from Agent Orange. And um, But that funny moment where he just went, mm, why not? And I, <laughs> I thought, if that isn't a typical, if I'd written another book, that would be it. You know, so. um, Well, and so few people talk about these issues about being like I was my book opens with my dad, me letting my dad go. And I think it's really important because um, it doesn't always it's not always peaceful. It's not always beautiful, but it's always real. Right. And you grow. from it. And compared to my mother's death, this was very gentle because Mm -hmm. he did make the decision. Ultimately, they called us to the hospital on the 6th when we got there. He was intubated, which, of course, he was very agitated. And you know how awful that is. And he they said, we're going to take we've spoken to your dad. He's cognizant. He's aware. And my dad's going like this. And he said, we're going to take out the uh, tube. But none of this is working. And they didn't say he's going to die. They didn't have to to me. I think my brother I'm not sure my brother understood what that meant. But, you know, I was able to walk over to him and say, Dad, they're going to take out the tubes. Do you understand what that means? And he nodded to me. And I went, okay. Wow. Yeah. And I said, okay. And then I went and I sat down and I, you know, my brother and I just, and he just slowly, you know, everything slowly, he slipped they say an, as an old soldier never dies, just slips away, fades away. And that's what happened. He just kind of went to sleep. Well, I'm so, getting emotional because you really get to know your father through this book. And he's I such had, a kind soul in your relationship with him. Yeah, it was. Um, I learned that. I mean, I'd always known he was funny and I always knew he was handsome and he was always, <laughs> you know, um Everybody liked him. I never knew how gentle he was mm. or how easily hurt he was. Um, and I think um, it just it was just a gift, even though the, the way in which I wound up there or here um, it was hard. It was such a gift to have it. Changed, it literally changed my life. I mean, you wrote a book about it, right? (laughs) Right. How old were you when you wrote this book? Was this your first book? Yes. Wow. I I had contributed to books, but they were all very technical and, you know, um, but this was the first one. And um, how old were you when it was published? When it was published, well, I was 69 or 70. Oh, my goodness. 
Linda Hogan, who I know will probably watch this eventually. She, my our friend Francis and Linda are both working on their books, and they're a little older. And uh, Linda's is coming out soon. And I just think you know Frank McCourt wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning Angel's Ashes yeah. when he was in his fifties. I, I probably remember. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. And I wrote my first book when I was forty nine. My second book when I was fifty. Yes, Francis, there is hope for you. Your book is going to come out. Yes. And Francis is a professor of anthropology at Mount Sac. She's an amazing writer, and she's writing a memoir. And so what, what do you have to say to older women, primarily, who are trying to write their first book in their 50s and 60s? Like, what advice do you have? I think, I think you're a really powerful testament about how life experience and that perspective that you had being able to look back is so powerful in memoir. I think, and I didn't realize in, until I wrote, I didn't, I, it's not that it, that my book taught me this about, okay, let me see if I can put this. I wish I had had books like this. Mm-hmm. You know, someone, there are two, um, my mother gave me books to read and sometimes I would look at them and go, why is she giving me this book? And I realized it was because she was at a stage of life where these books meant something to her. Mm-hmm. Um, if you you know this, everything is geared to the young. Businesses like the audience they have at the age they have them, but they're going, these guys are going to move on. We need to get younger people in here. So they're constantly looking for younger demographics, right? Just business. I get it. I understand it. But for the older I got, the eighteen less, to twenty-nine or whatever it is, yeah, right, that's right. The like they the have older I got, it. there was less out there for me. That's not why I wrote the book. But yeah. after I wrote it, women wrote to me and writers going, "Oh, you know, I'm so glad you're writing this book. It gives me hope that my book will be welcomed." Or you know, I'm writing this late. I'm just just do it. Yeah, you know, it's. Um, if I hadn't published it, I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about, and thankfully I've been able to let go of those things as I wrote the book, but I learned how much I thought was important that was not because Mm -hmm. I'm where I am now and can look back and go, you know, my thighs were fine when I was 18. They were just fine. They were exquisite. Oh, I right. appreciated them more. <laughs> so I, there's just um, do it for yourself. And if not writing a book, write essays, you know, mm-hmm. about moments and times. Those are the things that um, kept me going. Yeah. And I think that's really good advice because, you know, I wrote my book in a series of vignettes that I later strung together which took me two years to collate them but I think that you can do the same thing with essays or blogging you can use it as material for a later book and you may not know while you're writing it that all these things have a a, a thread but there always is a thread that you oh, can there's use. always a thread and I didn't even know I I'm telling you that every time I do a podcast or an interview or or talk to somebody about the book it often requires rereading it and Mm -hmm. I find things and I go, I remember writing that part, (laughs) you know, that's interesting. (laughs) And as I wrote it, I would go, you know, why was this important for me to put in here? 
And it was. And sometimes I didn't know until later why it was important. But, so um, on that note, how did it work when you wrote this? Did you interview your father or did you just journal after you talked to him from a pro from a how you did this as a process what was your writing process like I kept on thinking that while I was reading it because you had this beautiful way of integrating the information without it being clunky which I have read memoirs that try to do this where it's clunky yours is not it reads like a memoir but I know you must have interviewed your father but it's not like my dad told me this it's like you know you tell the scene and that's what I loved about I love books like that so how'd you do it well it was it started out pretty easy because I just would write about our days together mm -hmm. um, and then these and how he'd be telling me a story. He, he would tell me a story. We, we come from we come from a family of storytellers and mm -hmm. um, they're not always the truth. <laughs> I found out as I was writing this book, but lots of stories and um it started basically because I started asking questions because he wasn't a talker to me. You know, he, mm -hmm. he, um, he kind of liked re me to report in, you know, <laughs> but there wasn't a lot of just easy conversation. And he used to say, I guess he told me the story once that my mother told him, he said, are you going to keep talking? And she said, I have, 18,000 words a day and you're going to hear all of them by <laughs> noon. And, you know, and I, so he just was very, he would much rather watch Fox news, you know, God help him and the, um, his baseball or golf, you know, and anyway, I one day just sat down, I made him tea every afternoon because I made tea. And it was also something that just happened in our family. We would kind of stop for tea. And um, mm -hmm. one day I Hence made the a title to with dad. Yeah. Yep. Well, it was supposed to, I had started out with um, under the, under the 15th street bridge. That was mm. going to be the name of the thing because of the story of where they reconnected, you right. know, getting on the subway one day, but I made him tea one day and ran out of cookies and, okay, again, I'm in my sixties and I'm going, Oh my God, I ran out of cookies. I didn't, you know, I, another job I didn't do right. So I quickly made him cinnamon toast. Cinnamon toast. I yeah. thought maybe he'll like that. It's sweet. Maybe he won't notice. And so I said, Dad, got the cookies. And he went, thanks. And he went, and that's when he said to me, you know, your mother and I used to have tea and toast every afternoon after we got back from work before I went to my house and she went to her house. And that's when the story started. I thought, I'd wow. never heard that. And so I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, well, we'd take the subway in together. Um, and then we'd take it back from Wall Street. They worked on Wall Street and they would come back. And um, I was just interested. And so my process was that, yes. And I often took notes. I sat there taking notes. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing a book about mom. And he went, oh, okay. And so he started to tell me about mom, but that's how I got all his stories too. Oh, wow. That gives me goosebumps because like, it's not only you reconciling your parents' histories. It's all, also the book is about you reconciling 
the image of you in your mom's and that dad's eyes and that how that is different. Like, for example, your mom knew yeah. about you going to get an MBA and was like, MBA, why not an MFA? But your dad never knew you went to go get your MBA. Oh, and yeah. Finished it. Yeah. I love those those contrasts. And I had I would think and think about this when you think someone has been very inconsiderate or maybe not impressed mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, just doesn't really care. The fact was he didn't know. And I'd never really thought about one day I said to him, finally, you know, nothing about me. And he said, you know, you don't know anything about me either. (laughs) And I went, you know, okay, that's a challenge. But I said, dad, how long we sat and we went through every post he'd ever been stationed at, what ages, we, when they were. And that's when I realized that we had lived together maybe 50% of the time while wow. I was growing up. Because and, of the military aspect. Right. You know, he was gone a lot. And, and I had never really thought about when he would come back, I would, and I was a girl. He grew up in a very patriarchal he had only brothers. His mother, this is what my, this is what set my father's view of women. My grand, he was going out on his first date. He was 15. And my grandmother looked at him and said, you know that you are responsible for this girl's life. Wow. That means if she's in danger, you're responsible. You save her life before you save your own. And I looked at him, I said, are you kidding me? I mean, and he said, no. And I looked at him, I said, you know what that was? That's what she wanted her husband to be like. Mm. And that is true, because he was a bastard. My father's father was awful. And, and that was the other thing I learned, was I knew things about her that he didn't know. About his your mom. Mother, yeah. His own mother. And oh, because God. I had lived and observed them. Uh, many times when my father was away and he only knew her as his mother. I knew her as a woman because I, and also one of the women in my life, my mother, her, my other grandmother, they were all very different. And from the time I was a very little girl, I was a very, um, I was an observer of people Mm. from the time I was a very little girl. And I think they interested me like characters. So. Well, yeah. And there's that scene with your mother that really stuck with me, struck, stuck with me for some reason. I think it's on page 66 where your, um, your mother like dresses you up and takes you to go have tea with like in the general, with all the officers in the right. area in like a, almost like a tea room and the officers you- club. Oh, yes, exactly. And so yeah. I was like, oh, it it just so captured that time. It was. Because oh, you nice. kind of wanted to still play softball. And she was like, you're becoming a lady kind of thing. Yeah. And looking back on that, why do you think she did that? I think she had to. Mm. Um, part of the conflict was with my mother was her. And I'm still that I'm still sorting out. Um because I understand it. I just don't have, it's in my head. I can't get it yeah, into yeah, words yeah. yet. But she was a military, there were expectations of wives and families. Mm-hmm. And that's something a lot of people 
um, military brats know it, military families know it, even now, that um, who your family is reflects on your career. If you can't manage your family, mm. how can you manage everything else? But it was a time, a time where women were, you know, domestic goddesses yep. <laughs> or whatever. And, um, and the role for girls was pretty well laid out. It was posture the, mattered, manners mattered. Posture, which was never good. I have to tell you, my posture was never good. Um, grace, mm -hmm. um, but knowing what to wear and um, when to wear what. And there were rules. I mean, when my mother married my father, um, there there was a book in our house called Mrs. Lieutenant. And it was oh, a wow. Book that was given, now my father was not a, my father was a West Pointer, uh, I'm sorry, a Mustang. He did not have a college degree when he enlisted. He did not go to West Point or ROTC. So he had to work his way up. The two of them had to do that together. And um, this was a book in our house. We had calling cards. When I reached a certain age, I had to have calling cards. I mean, I remember reading this book going, I will never make it. This is, <laughs> this is the way we have to operate. I'm I'm out of luck, but, um, I mean, I sometimes get that from my mother-in-law who's 89, who lives with us. You know, she used to be chaperoned. That's, you know, back oh, in yeah, the day yeah. Argentina. And yeah, I mean, looking at things now, it's so different, but I love yeah. how you capture time and place. And then you also capture yourself, right? You're talking yeah. about your own divorces. I don't know if you're comfortable talking about that, but I read a book. <laughs> yeah. Well, not everyone is right. Yeah. You're, your second divorce, your ex-husband comes out as gay. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, we're in a very different time now, but, you know, it, was it must have been shocking. Then, yeah. It was. Yeah. And at that time, and it seems like such a short time ago, but it was, and not that this is new or, or that um, everyone is accepted or that it's easier, but this was 20 some odd years ago now. And at that time, I remember being so afraid for him. Yeah. And so afraid for my children. Yeah. And, and in there, I must have been afraid for me as well. But it was just I it was there's nothing to prepare you for that. We are prepared. If our husband has an affair, I mean, yeah. far more. We are prepared if our, you know, and when I say prepared, no one's ever prepared, but yeah. there are points of reference. There was no point of reference for me. And mm -hmm. what, uh, in talking to other women that this happens to, you are so thrown off base. It's as though you're wondering how you've navigated through life that you wouldn't pick up on this, that you wouldn't know about it. But if you think about the poor person that has to feels that they have to live like that um, and hide who they are. Yeah. They have to be pretty good at it. You know, oh, your book is very forgiving in that way. And, and, and you really handle the situation well. And to me, what I came out of it was the sense of grief and loss that your character was really feeling the narrator and, you know, connecting that with the mother's demise as well, that you, the death of your mother and how that kind of went 
through. There was this connection to me and your work, which is actually really hard to find books that talk about grief and loss. And there was an overwhelming sense of grief in your book, Uh, not only of your marriage's demise, your mother's demise, but just of life in general and how things turn out. And I know what this is like. I couldn't have kids and I had to reconcile at 43 that I wouldn't have kids after going through in vitro and that my life was not going to be as I expected. Um, Yeah, I I think that. I did not realize in writing the book, people told me that the book was about loss mm. and people told me that the book was about grief. I, I'm telling you, I cried the whole time I wrote the book and I was going, why am I crying? Mm-hmm. I mean, I already did all the crying. Why am I still crying? But it was the book. I know it. In fact, it won. It was a finalist in the forward Indies in the grief section. And mm. my editor, my editor, I said to her, guess what? <laughs> I'm a finalist. And she said, in grief, I never would have thought that. And I went, I didn't think so while I was writing it. But I do think that that's what um, the book talks to us about. We go through so many losses and, and yeah. griefs, or maybe we don't grieve when we should, because we don't realize it's a loss. Um, or we're not allowed to. You know, yeah, then- and your your book beautifully does what I love about books that do talk about loss and tragedy is there's humor, there's grace, there's happiness. It goes up and down. You're not it's not just one note, you know, where we're just crying the whole time we're reading it. But I did come away with a little bit like, wow, you know, a lot of loss, but not like over like just life losses that life losses. Yeah. yeah. Especially by 50 or 60, right? Maybe at 20, a lot of people haven't had these kind of losses. But really, by 50, you're like, oh, now I know what they mean when people say enjoy your youth, right? Right. And I think that we also categorize loss. You know, we'll say, (laughs) this is a little loss. This is a big loss. It compounds if you don't work through it. It Mm. compounds. And I think that all of the not dealing with the losses I felt, talking about them, understanding what they were as a child and moving. I mean, I moved away from my family, my father, my grandparents, you know, I'm all of the things that you moved from home. I mean, from place to place as a military brat, you talk about that. And yeah, I mean, you don't, your book really is not fully about that. I almost think you could write a young adult memoir about that uh, because it's just a fascinating story of this young girl being forced to move from place to place, you have no control. And at one point, I think in the book, you tell your mom, I'm not moving. Yeah. I don't know. I told her I, I didn't want to move. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I was 10 and I did not want to move. And I said, I don't want to move. And that's when she asked me why. And, and I remember her face. It was kind of like, you ain't got a You're not the only one. <laughs> why are you, why is this, any more important to you than me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought she was very unsympathetic or just didn't get it. And the fact was. She didn't want to move either. Yeah. She didn't want to move either. She was tired. And I never, I so never, you don't. And my, you know, I have three daughters, two of them have children and both of them at times have said, and I mean, I, I apologize to them constantly for being their mother. And, you know, I'll go, I just want you to know, I'm really sorry about 2002. 
that was a bad year. <laughs> you should give a class in that to moms because my mom could take a class in that. No, I'm telling you, it's just, look, I also used to tell them I was the Teflon mom. I don't feel guilt either. You know, I did the best I could. Yeah. And we can all get therapy, you know? Yeah. That's a, so, but. And I, as a daughter, I look at my mom now and go, wow, she did a really good job considering. Let number me one, tell you something. If your kids are still skills. standing. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> But both my daughters have at times looked at me and said, I had no idea. And I, I go, you know, how can you? I sure didn't. And I will be always sorry that I wasn't able to look at my mom and go, because I think I spent a lot of my time proving that I was going to be better than she was at everything she did, yeah. which must have been very hard for her, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to do so this. I'm not going to do that. I think you write a little list in your book about yeah, the way you yeah. didn't want to be like your mom. But then mm -hmm. in the end, we all are so much like our mother. Oh, so it's much. Scary, right? <laughs> when I first started dating my husband, we've been together 30 years, and we would fight, and I'd like, get out of the car. And he'd be like, who does that? I'm like, my mother. <laughs> or I would do things because I thought my mother should have. Mm -hmm, exactly. You know, that's, that's the other thing. Well, you know, I'm not going to be like her. I'm going to do it my way. Well, guess what? She wound up not divorced and with a man who, while she was dying, was there every single minute taking care yeah. of her. And I think that was the other thing is I had no idea how much he loved her um, yeah. and how much they loved each other because he sh he shared things, you know, like how how well he knew her. And I would look and think he had treated her terribly and, you know, some, like, you know, the story where he joined the army and didn't tell her. And right. so like, Friday night before he was leaving on Monday, uh, he did the same thing when he went to Korea. His, his father-in-law had to say, are you going to tell her or am I? Because he found the orders. Um, he just said it was better for your mother to not have weeks or months of anxiety. Yeah. He knew her that well. That she got by on anger, yeah. and um, that was better for her and more um, comforting in an odd way than the anxiety would be. So yeah. there, you, I don't know. We just we could all write books, Juanita. Yes, yes. Well, um, Francis said, "I get that compounded grief." And going back to that really briefly, you know, when your mom's passing away, your your father just doesn't want to accept it. And he's pretty much in denial. And I mean, maybe that's a co coping mechanism and it's okay. So I love the way you also capture that. But one of my favorite chapters is towards the very end. There's two or three chapters. One of them is called caretaking and mm -hmm. where you and your father have settled into this rhythm. Yeah. I, I can think of no other word for it. It's almost like your roommates, like best friends, like, right. <laughs> right? And you're like, right. drives together. We go to the casino. Yeah. <laughs> What was that like? And what was writing that like? Was that I fun? It was because, um, first of all, it allowed me to see how far we progressed, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and that we did have shared interests. I'm going to tell you, I will tell everybody I hate the casino and don't like the casino, but give me some 
you know, the free money they give you. And I'm free play. I'm go, yeah. Oh, you're but talking I, to a girl who goes once a month with my husband. And my, I can't afford my it because I'm a loser. Yeah. He's very, he was very lucky. I mean, this man won a lot of money, yeah. but he was very disciplined. He'd walk in with only so much, you know, and he'd leave. Not me, boy. I'd go, give me five more. Do you have $5? I think. <laughs> and so, um, but we, we just took rides and um, he loved to eat out. God, he loved to eat out. And um, right. What's that? He loved to golf. Oh, he loved to golf. Yes. And he had his friends, the Fogs, the, the <laughs> effing old guys. And uh, they were his, I say that they were like his civilian band of brothers because they were there after mom died. And he would say to me, I wouldn't have made it through without having them, you know, to go out and play golf with every day and um, eat breakfast with twice a week. So, but yeah, going, having those rituals together made it easier when the time came for a, a role reversal um, where I was caring for him. And I want to say this because I think it's really important. I missed it. And that is you, you can slip very quickly into a full-time caregiver. And that's what happened to me. And I didn't, I think I would have been gentler on myself if I'd understood that be, um, yeah. in this last year after the book was written, because I was so tired mm. and I think impatient yeah. sometimes, but you're, but he, right before the book came out, a month before the book came out, he became very ill. And that's when there was this cycle of him starting to, um, really age quickly and get sicker. And so I think- What was it, your father's name again? His middle, he went by, well, for the family, we called him Lowen. His mm. name was James Lowen. Mm. So everyone knew him as Jim at work or, you know, his friends, but family called him Lowen. Mm. And uh, so he, um, I think that people who, there's a, whole demographic in this country that does not get credit yeah and those are the people who like you and uh, your husband and and who take care of their their parents yeah or other family members and it's so important because it's hard you know yeah. it's really hard and I don't you and you sacrifice for it. It's like, but you also get so much from it. Yes. That it's kind I, of an even trade-off, in my opinion. But the thing is, if you don't have these conversations ahead of time or try, you may I guess I want to say to people, don't accept if there's someone that you want to have a relationship with, or at least investigate the possibility of having a relationship with check it out. Don't wait. Mm -hmm. um, you may not, you may find that you shouldn't, you may find it's not a, possible, but why take the chance of missing the chance yeah. to bridge that bridge gaps and, and um, there, you know, estrangement is just increasing so much and it's, it's hard, you know, but it takes, if you want it, it's, it's possible at least to get to the point where you go, okay, I'll continue on or no, this isn't healthy. Um, but what did, are, 
Go yeah. ahead. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but um, we have about five minutes. But I wanted to ask what your dad thought of the book. Did he read it? <laughs> he did. And, uh, the, you know, I made an agreement with him, a promise, and it wasn't something he solicited. I said to him, I won't put anything in the book that will make you uncomfortable without telling you. I mm. won't. That doesn't mean I won't write it. And it doesn't mean I won't put it in, you know, but um, I want you to know and not be surprised. And he said to me, he thought about it. And then he said, well, I guess I can write my own damn book if I don't like your book. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then the only thing he said a couple of times, he's read it and he said, I don't remember it that way. Okay. And I went, okay. That's okay. I said, that's okay. Because I've made it clear it's what I remember. Yeah. So, but that, he said that twice, and that's all. And and from what I'm told, he never told me, but from what I'm told, he was very proud. Um, he was always giving away my books. <laughs> I said, Dad, these cost money. <laughs> and he was going, but he's saying, "Hey, could I have eight books?" <laughs> <laughs> Not making a profit this month. <laughs> <laughs> But that isn't why we wrote it. So, yeah, right. I mean, really, when you write, when you're a little older, I think the goal is to tell your tale and for people to read it. And yeah. I give away a lot of books just because I want people to read it. And that's so beautiful that your dad would just be like, "Give me ten books. I got these fogs. Oh, I need this." You know, the best thing was one day he came home and he had taken a picture of the fogs at breakfast, <laughs> holding the books, <laughs> and there they were. <laughs> so they did I he told me that the fogs felt that they hadn't been mentioned enough. Wow. Wow. Maybe another you know, book. I would say I wrote my book for to bring my dad to the page and now I'm making a play to bring him back to life. Oh. And it's very profound in a way when mm -hmm. you write about someone who's passed away. So I, I, I just love your book. I mean, and he, he got to read it as the most beautiful part of it. He got to read yeah. how much you, at the end of the book, it's really a love story of it you is. falling in love back and, you know, getting to know and falling in love with your father yeah. as your parent, but also as a friend, right? Yeah. And I think what was, by the end, he was, now that doesn't mean we didn't have our moments. Right. Because we did. But, you know, I don't think there was anything I couldn't have told him. Wow. Um, I, I think that we learned how to respect each other and mm -hmm. uh, enough about one another to care about what we said, how we said it, a lot of it, how we said. I think we're careless yeah. um, sometimes when we're talking to family um, in the words that we use. But that all changed, and I'm grateful. And I'm grateful that um, I'm grateful at how it all ended. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's looking down on us, I'm sure, and he's so proud of you. He has things to say. <laughs> As I said, the big casino in the sky, or the golf course in the sky looking down. Unless he's winning, then don't bother him. <laughs> well, this has been such a pleasure. Can you tell my viewers where they can buy your book? You can buy it anywhere, as you probably know. Um, it can be hard to find. You can always order one of these, uh, a book through um, a bookstore. 
a little indie bookstore, which we always, if they don't carry it on the shelf, every now and then somebody sends me a picture from an indie bookstore and I go, wow, but um, you can get it on Amazon. You can order. A, I always tell them to try bookshop.org yeah, because that, that supports great. indie bookstores. Um, but any, almost anywhere, Target, Walmart. <laughs> great. The way they run this business. I've learned a lot about the publishing business. Doing well, this. I can't wait for your next one. I hope you write another book. This is called Tea with Dad, Finding Myself in My Father's Life. It's such a beautiful read. Uh, it just draws you. you in. And this this conversation, I have to say, has been quite illuminating and like almost healing. Um, oh. We have a lot in common in that way with the grief. I was, God. well, I will be talking to you. I'm um, giving your book a deep read. Oh. And I'm just amazed at the intersections. You yeah. Know? So. Yeah, yeah we got to talk about that one day. Yeah. That'd be fun. It will well, be. Maybe you could come back on if you write another book or you want to come out and talk about my book. We can do like a roundtable oh, thing. Yes. Well, we'll talk about that, but I want, but everybody should read your book too. I mm. love it. I love it. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Everyone check out Tea with Dad, Finding Myself in My Father's Life. It's so beautifully done. You can get it on Bookshop. You can get it on Amazon and you can just pretty much get it anywhere. And in two weeks, we have best-selling author of The Distance Between Us, Renya Grande, who will be reading from her book, which is a fictional masterpiece called A Ballad of Love and Glory. I'm I'm about halfway through it and I'm going to I'm going to speed my way through it to get to finish it. It's I've read all her other books, but this one, I mean, if you can get this book too, check yeah. it out. I mean, it's selling like hotcakes. She doesn't really need me to promote it, but I want to because I just think Renya's a Mercandista and I know her quite well and she's a wonderful writer too. So, two weeks on a Wednesday 7 p.m. check it out. Really happy to have her on. But thank you, Nancy. Thank it has you. been a joy. It has been fun. Thanks a lot. Okay. Have a great thank night. You. Bye, everybody. Bye.